I will begin this feast of trumpets as I begin all of the appointed times of the Lord with Psalm 40, verse 7. I prefer it best from the King James Version, which says, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. Which means the entire Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, teaches one consistent theme, which is the salvation of fallen mankind through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah, Yeshua. In Leviticus chapter 23, God gives us seven appointed times. Four teach the first coming of the Lord, three teach the second. Messiah died at Passover, was buried in unleavened bread, was raised at first fruits. The Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Weeks. Then Leviticus 23, there is one verse that describes the harvest period which is a term for the church age. At the end of that harvest period comes the Feast of Trumpets with the blowing of trumpets, the Teruah. And the dead in Messiah shall rise first, and we which alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to be with the Lord, and so shall we always be with the Lord. And then ten days later is the Day of Atonement, which teaches Messiah's physical return to the earth for the battle of Armageddon and the judgment of all mankind. In five days later, the Feast of Tabernacles, as Zechariah 14, 16 tells us, every single person will celebrate year in and year out from then until forevermore. Is it important to understand the feasts? Yes. Absolutely is. But why? Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and the Apostle Paul tells us why it is so important. Because we are not in darkness. That's absolutely right. Most people when I talk to them about end times prophecy say, No man knows the day or the hour. We're all in darkness. To which I go, well, <laughs> let's go look and see. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Which, I almost hate to say it, follows chapter 4. <laughs> to which you go, well, duh. Well, chapter 4 describes the rapture and the resurrection. And chapter 5, verse 1 says, but, is this a new topic? No. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, those two words, times and seasons, refer to the appointed times of the Lord and how they teach the first and second coming of Messiah. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Why? Because they celebrated them year in and year out. So for 1,500 years before Messiah was even born, they killed the lamb at 3 p.m. on Passover. Messiah died at what time? 3 p.m. at Passover. Was that a coincidence? It was not a coincidence. So if you understand the appointed times of Leviticus 23, you will not be caught like a thief in the night. So let's read verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly... That the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. That's true, but read on. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, you're not them, you're you. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. 
What makes the difference between those that are in darkness and don't know it's coming and those who are in the light and know it's coming? Do you understand the, the appointed times of the Lord in Leviticus 23? Oh, I listen to prophecy teachers all week long say, the rapture is imminent. Nobody knows. It could happen 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago. It could happen yesterday and we missed it. Or maybe it'll happen today. Well, they're finally right. It may happen today. When will we know? Ask me tomorrow. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. Let's turn there. Leviticus chapter 23. And read about what's called in Hebrew the Shalosh Regalim, which literally means three feet. It's the three pilgrim festivals, the three times all of Israel is required to go up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Why? When Messiah was crucified, where was all Israel? In Jerusalem to see it. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, where was all Israel? In Jerusalem to see it. When Messiah returns here shortly, where will all Israel be? In Jerusalem to see it. So verse 1 says, and the Lord. That word Lord is the tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav heh. It is the name that is our Messiah Yeshua. If thou shalt believe that the Lord... Adonai is Yeshua. It says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Spoke to Moses saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. What did Messiah say in Matthew 4, 4? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How do you know if the words proceed from the mouth of God? When it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, it indicates these are the Lord's own words from his very lips. Speak to the children of Israel. That's a broad term. He didn't say speak to Israel. He says speak to the children of Israel. When the descendants of Jacob came out of Egypt, there was a great mixed multitude that came out and gets mixed in with the people like a cultivated olive tree accepting the wild olive tree into it. As Romans chapter 11 describes. This is to the whole group. They're at the bottom of Mount Sinai. If you read the Hebrew, it literally says they're what? They're under Mount Sinai. As if God has raised the mountain off the ground and they're all standing under it. What's the significance of that? Where do we get married? We get married under a canopy, a covering. The mountain is the covering. But number two, it's kind of like saying God says, if you don't listen, I'll just drop the mountain. Okay. Well, it was a very, very clear picture back then. So speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feast of the Lord. What's wrong with that sentence? It's wrong. The word feast is not feast. The word feast is chag. This is moedim. Moedim are the appointed times of the Lord. A moed is an appointment. Like you make an appointment with a doctor and you keep it. God makes appointments with mankind that he keeps through the person of our Messiah Yeshua in the first and second coming. So the appointed times of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Holy means set aside unto the Lord. Convocation means a rehearsal. So a gathering together to rehearse. 
For 1,500 years before Messiah was born, they gathered together on the first month of the year, on the 14th day, and at 3 p.m. they killed the lamb. Practicing, rehearsing, teaching about, prophesying about what would happen to our Messiah Yeshua on Passover 2,000 years ago. And then he reiterates, after he said, they're the appointed times of the Lord, he says, these are my appointed times. He will keep them with us. Verse 3 says, six days shall work be done. Just fix that. Six days may work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. That means that the seventh day Sabbath teaches us and rehearses something. What it rehearses is the millennial kingdom. Because on the seventh day, God commanded that we rest. Where is Satan in the seventh millennium of time? He's bound away, isn't he? Bound by chains down in the pit. And there is finally on earth peace. It says nations learn war no more. The animals are not dangerous. The children can play by the snake holes. Today, if you let your children play by the snake holes, you're a bad parent. In the millennial kingdom, it's just going to be, that's just the way it is. It says, you shall do no work on it. It's the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And verse 4 says, these are the appointed times of the Lord. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim when? Whenever you want to. Whenever it's convenient. No, it's at their appointed times. Because what they let you know, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, is the timing of the Lord's comings. So today, the Feast of Trumpets. Let's go to verse 22. Verse 22 is that harvest period that I referred to. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap. Nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Which means like, hey, because I'm the parent and I said so. But the harvest in Israel is so important prophetically. It was in three parts. First came the first fruits. What were the first fruits of the resurrection? Messiah is the first fruits of the resurrection. And then comes the main harvest, which is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, which this holy day we're in today teaches us about. But then there's the gleanings. What about the gleanings? Those that get saved after the rapture, during the seven-year tribulation period, that Revelation 7 says are an innumerable company. They get resurrected in Revelation chapter 20 at the end of the tribulation period. So that completes the first resurrection. It is the first fruits, it's the main harvest, and it is the gleanings. So today, we want to read Psalm chapter 27. Psalm chapter 27, because it's tradition. Is tradition mandatory? No, that's why it's called tradition. Is every tradition good? No. Is every tradition bad? No. So how do you determine if a tradition is good or bad? Does it con concur with the scripture? Does it help us understand the scripture or does it conflict? Yes, sir. Yeah, so a Christmas ham would be bad. A Christmas ham would be bad. Yeah, just as a for instance. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. 
and a Hanukkah bush is not any better than a Christmas tree. Okay. So we're in Psalm 27. Let us read. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. In this what? Here it comes. This is why we read it today. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That phrase, all the days of my life, means in this world and in the world to come. It's a prayer of David that the only thing I want is to live eternally with our Lord and Savior. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, what time of trouble? Time of Jacob's trouble, that's another term for the tribulation period. He shall hide me in his pavilion. So David says, before the wrath of God is unleashed on the earth, God is going to take me to be with him. And we will dwell in that heavenly pavilion while the time of trouble plays out here on earth. Is that for David the rapture? No, that's the resurrection because he's been dead a long time. But what do you know about the rapture and the resurrection? They occur at the same time. He shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. What is the rock upon whom David relies for his salvation? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. When you see that sacrifices of joy, which festival immediately jumps off the page? The Feast of Tabernacles, which teaches God establishing the Millennial Kingdom here on earth at the end of the Tribulation period. So God brought him up to the heavenly temple, kept him safe and secure while the tribulation period unfolded on earth, and then brings David back with him for the establishment of the kingdom on earth. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. The singing, the shouting, the praises of joy is another way to describe a teruah. When the trumpet blows, there's the shout of joy. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. It's actually even if they do. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path. What does the Lord teach during the millennial kingdom according to Isaiah 2 and Micah 4? Teaches Torah. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed. 
that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David says he's been under such persecution here on earth that he just would have lost all hope except he knows that the Lord is coming, that the Lord will capture him up to the heavens, protect him as the wrath is unleashed on earth, and then bring him back in the kingdom. So he says, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Traditionally, there's a blessing that's said before we sound the shofar. And it goes like this. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu, Melech ha'olam, Asher kedeshanu b'mitzvotah, v'tzivanu, l'ashmoah, kol ha'shofar. Which means, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe who sanctifies us by thy commandments and commands us to hear the sound of the shofar. <laughs> I assure you, God will do it much better. Now let's go back to Leviticus 23. We didn't finish Leviticus 23. Verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Whose words are these? Did Moses make them up? Did he have a bad dream one night? No, it's right from the Lord's own lips. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, that's this month, on the first day of the month, that's today, you shall have a Sabbath rest. That's why it's a high Sabbath. A memorial of blowing of trumpets. A holy convocation. A memorial of blowing of trumpets. A memorial, a zikaron, a remembrance. We'll have to talk about that in a few minutes. When it says a holy convocation, that means this particular celebration rehearses something that Messiah will fulfill in his second coming. What it fulfills is the rapture and the resurrection. But before I get too far ahead of myself, you guys know I have impulse control problems. <laughs> Let me give you some of the names of this festival because the names teach its nature. It teaches what the children of Israel who were there when the scriptures were written understood the scriptures to say. The first name it's called is the secular name of today, Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year or New Year's. How can the seventh month be the new year? Because there's two calendars. In Exodus chapter 12, God added a second calendar where the first month of the year is in the spring. Prior to that, the first month of the year is in the fall. Because it celebrates the history of creation. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Second name, Yom Teruah, which is the day of the blowing of the trumpets or the day of the awakening trumpet blast. Third name is Yom Hadin. Yom Hadin means the day of judgment. Because at the rapture and the resurrection, when the believers are caught up to heaven, we receive our robes and crowns. That's our judgment, called the Bema Seat Judgment. 
Will you receive crowns? We shall see. Number four, it's called Hamelech. This is one of my favorite names. Hamelech means the king. Because it teaches about the coronation of Messiah as king of kings and lord of lords. Traditionally, when a king was crowned, he also took a bride. Hmm. The fifth name is called as Yom HaZikaron, which means the day of remembrance or a memorial. What does it remember? What does it memorialize? That means to look backwards. Something happened in the scriptures that is so closely associated with this day. What is that? The Akita, the binding of Isaac. You're absolutely right. And the binding of Isaac is all about salvation by faith and resurrection from the dead. Number six, it's also called the last trump. The last trump. What did, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 50? The rapture and resurrection is at the last trump. Hmm. Where does he say that at? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and following. Will we look at all these shortly? Yes, we will. Okay. Right now you're just making an outline. Seven and last name for it is Yom HaKisei. Yom HaKisei. How do you spell that? Anything that makes you say Yom HaKisei. I spelled it Y-O-M space H-A-K-E-S-E-H. Yom HaKisei means the day of hiding. The day of hiding. Alright. Those names also tell us the themes. They reveal to us the themes. The first and most important theme of Yom Teruah, the day the awakening trumpet blast, is Teshuva, which means repentance. It is at this time of year that every year the people of Judea would go down to the Jordan River to have John the Baptist baptize them. And in Matthew chapter 3, it tells us what John taught as he baptized the masses. What did he teach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it means be ready. Be ready. The Lord may blow the trumpet today. If he does, are you ready to go home? If you are, praise the Lord. And if you're not, I get on it. Because today really could be the day. That time of Teshuva goes from the first day of Elul until the day of atonement. So we're 30 days into it. But at Rosh Hashanah, the last 10 days, the Feast of Trumpets to the Day of Atonement, the last 10 days of Teshuva have a special name. They're called Yamim Noraim, the days of awe. The days of awe. Meaning there's still time to come to repentance until we reach the end of the 40 days, until we reach the Day of Atonement, the day that teaches Messiah returns for Armageddon. But boy, if you're not saved before the Feast of Trumpets, those 10 days are going to be days of awe. Are they days you want to see? You want to see them from heaven, not from here on earth. 
Okay, why is it called Rosh Hashanah? Head of the year or new year? Rosh means head, Hashanah means the year. It's the head of the year on the civil calendar, the one that begins in Tishrei this month. It's known as the birthday of the world. According to the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah 11a, it was on this day that Adam and Eve were created. There'd be no reason to count time before there's anybody to count time, right? So that's why the counting of time starts today. Adam and Eve were created. According to the ancients, I assure you, I was not there. But let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. How did creation happen? Genesis chapter 1. It begins with the word Bereshit. In the beginning. In the beginning of what? Beginning of everything. Right? Beginning of time. God created. The word God there is Elohim. Elohim is plural. Elohim can refer to the true and living God or to the pagan gods of the Gentiles. How do we know which this refers to? Because the verb bara created is singular. Whenever Elohim refers to our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the verb is singular. When it refers to the pagan gods, the verb will be plural. So in the beginning, God created. Bara created means out of nothing. The heavens and the earth, that is all that's above us and all that's below us. And in between created and the heavens and the earth, there's a little direct object marker which is an olive tav. But they're different from most of the olive tavs in the scripture. Instead of a segol vowel, et, it's a seri vowel, eight. It doesn't get translated into English because nobody knew what in the world it was. Until Messiah said what in Revelation? I am the olive and the tav, the first and the last. And if you look, everywhere that olive tav appears as eight instead of at, it's going to make reference to Messiah. So in Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth, but did God create as the Father, as the Son, or as the Holy Spirit? As the Son. Can we prove it? Let's go to John 1.1. Where, where is that where is that olive top found in verse 1? It's not translated at all. It's before the heavens and before the earth. It says in Hebrew, Bereshit, bara Elohim, eight Hashemayim, the eight Haaretz. It's between created and the heavens, and then between and and the earth. It appears twice. To John chapter 1. The first verse we talked about was Psalm 40, verse 7. Messiah is from the first verse of Genesis to the end of Revelation. John 1 1. In the beginning, what's that in Hebrew? Bereshit. It's the very same words that begin Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. 
And verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled amongst us. So God created the heavens and the earth through Messiah. It was all created through him. All created through him for whose benefit? For ours. For you and for me. And where does the Bible first refer to these appointed times of the Lord that we looked at? Passover, unleavened bread, etc. Where are they first in the scripture? Genesis 1. So let's go back to Genesis 1. Verse 14. Genesis 1, verse 14. We are on the fourth day of creation. Man doesn't get created until the sixth day. So there are no people on earth. It says in verse 14, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. That's the sun, moon, and the stars. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. That word seasons is not seasons. Summer, winter, spring, and fall. That Hebrew word is saman. This word is Moedim. This is the appointed times. Before God created anybody, he put the sun, moon, and stars up there so that we would know when Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, the feast of weeks, the feast of trumpets, the day of atonement, and the feast of tabernacles would fall. So how important are these appointed times to God? They are very important. Hamelik, the king. Let's go to Psalm 98, verse 6. Psalm 98, verse 6. Messiah doesn't get referred to in the scripture as a king until after we come to the rapture and resurrection. Did you know that? Psalm 98, verse 6. His coronation is associated with the blowing of the trumpets, the shofars. Psalm 98, verse 6. With trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. With trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. How do we know the Lord here refers to our Messiah Yeshua who's going to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Our Messiah Yeshua. Go to Psalm 47. Psalm 47. Are you recording this just in case we survive? Of course. What do we ever do that I don't record? If I ever don't record, it means I forgot to hit the button. <laughs> That's happened before, yeah. Okay. Psalm 47. To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. That's a teruah. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He's a great king over all the earth. When does he become the great king over all the earth? 
He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. That's at the tribulation period that he does that. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. Not Selah back there, but Selah means pause. Wait a minute. Think about it. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Do you ever read Revelation chapter 5? What are we going to do in heaven? We are going to sing. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. That's Messiah in the messianic kingdom sitting in the newly rebuilt temple. The princes of the people have gathered together. The people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 9. When he says the shields of the earth, is that referring to the might of the army? Yeah, the protection. Yeah, who's going to protect the earth during the millennial kingdom? Why is there going to be no war? Because what did the Lord say in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4? Don't do it. Yeah. Isaiah chapter 9. Yeshiahu, the Lord is salvation. We sang, was it Saturday? Vayichra Shemo, which is from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. And his name will be called. It begins, Ki yelad yulad lanu. That's the beginning of verse 6. For unto us a child is born. That's Messiah's first coming. Was he actually born of a woman? Yes, he was. Why? He can't be our redeemer if he's not a kinsman. He must be a flesh and blood relative. God in heaven's his spirit. He's not our relative. So he had to take on a body of flesh and blood. But any relative of yours that's closer to you in blood than Messiah could redeem you instead. If they have the ability and the willingness. Who closer to you has the ability? The answer is none. Then the second phrase. For unto us a son is given. The son refers not to a baby. This refers to the second coming. He is the son of God. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called. There's Vayakrashmon. His name will be called. What's the first thing it says? Wonderful counselor. If you've got a comma between those two, scratch it out. The Hebrew is Peleoates. And wonderful counselor. What's the next phrase? Mighty God. El Gibor. Gibor doesn't just mean mighty. It means a mighty man of war. When Messiah returns in Revelation 19, does he come on a donkey seeking peace? Or does he come on a white horse with the sword in his mouth for war? He is that El Gibor, the mighty warrior God. Next is everlasting father, but that isn't right. The Hebrew is Ad Olam, which is a word pair. It means he's the father of eternity. That is the creator of all things, as John 1.1 told us. And then lastly, he's Prince of Peace. The word prince in the Bible does not mean the son of a king. It means a leader, one who's in charge of something. So he is the one who will bring peace to the earth. 
with all due apologies to those who believe in amillennialism, that the earth right now is a beautiful place of peace and harmony, getting just more godly and more godly all the time, that is nonsense. It's not until Messiah comes that there will finally be peace. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. But there's something in verse 7 you don't see in the English. I want you to make note of it if you've never known it. In Hebrew, there are 22 letters in the alphabet. Five look different when they come at the end of a word. They're called sophit forms. There is one word in the entire Bible that has a final form in the middle of the word. And that's of the increase, which is in Hebrew, lamarbe. And that M sound in Lamarba is a final name, which is a closed box. And for centuries before Messiah was born, the rabbis of old and the priests taught that that means that Messiah will be virgin born, that that's why there's a final name in the middle of Lamarba. Of course, after Messiah, they said, well, gee, we got that one wrong, didn't we? But the truth is, yes, they got that one quite correct. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. So when does Messiah begin to rule as king of kings? The answer is at the rapture and resurrection. The teaching is the coronation of the king. One of the things you'll notice is when my wife made the challah for today, it's made round in the shape of a crown. It's always been that way for the Feast of Trumpets. So Messiah reigns for his first seven years in heaven and then brings his throne to Jerusalem at the end of seven years. Where did David reign for his first seven years? In Hebron, which in Jewish thought is a picture of heaven. And after seven years, David brought his kingdom to Jerusalem in a picture, a prophecy of the way Messiah's rule and reign would be. Let's look also at Psalm 2. Oh, just give her a shofar. She's fine. <laughs> verse 2, Psalm 2, rather, verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And a people's plot a vain thing. This is a dual fulfillment prophecy. The second fulfillment is the battle of Armageddon, Zechariah 14. Which nations come against Jerusalem? All nations. And when it says they plot a vain thing, is God sitting in heaven going, oh, I'm terrified, maybe they'll beat me? No. Vain means empty, useless, it ain't going to happen. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So why are they coming against Jerusalem? Because they don't want Messiah to return. But it says in verse 4, he who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. They shall speak to them in his wrath. When does the wrath of God get poured out? In the tribulation period and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the kings of the earth for your possession. So notice, the king begins to reign before the nations are defeated, and the kingdom comes to the earth. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That is Armageddon. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And then it ends with blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Turn to Micah chapter 7. There is another tradition that we do at this particular time of year at the Feast of Trumpets called Tashlik. comes from Micah chapter 7 verse 19. It's not something you have to do. That's why it's a custom or tradition. But after we finish lunch today, I'm going to go out to the river. I'm going to do Tashlik because I really like the symbolism of it. And it comes from this verse. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So we go out to our running body of water like I go up to the river up in Elegy, up on Memorial Bridge. Because it's a day of remembrance, a day of memorial. And I take breadcrumbs and I cast them onto the flowing river below me. And as the breadcrumbs are carried as far away from us as we can see, it just reminds me of how Messiah takes our sin as far away as the east is from the west. He's our king, he's our Messiah, our savior, our friend. Now he talked about it being a remembrance, a zikaron is the word in Hebrew. Let's go to Genesis 22. Historically, traditionally, this is the section that's read every Feast of Trumpets as what we need to remember. Genesis 22. The Akita, the binding of Isaac. You could say Akita or Akita, depending upon whether you're doing an English accent or a Hebraic accent. Just read it. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. After these things, before this is Genesis 15. God promised Abraham that, no, 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 your servant will be your heir. You'll have more descendants than the stars in the skies in the heavens. And in Genesis 15, 6, it says, And Avram believed God, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. So in chapter 22 of Genesis, God is going to test Abraham to see, is his faith as strong and real as he believes it is? And he said to him, Avraham, not Avram. In Genesis 15, his name was Avram. Avram means exalted father. Avraham, which God changed his name to, means father of a multitude. It is the promise of that countless multitude of descendants. And Abraham replies with Hanani, here I am, meaning here I am and ready to do whatever you ask of me. He said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah. Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount. Of course, it wasn't back then. Nor did Abraham know what it was going to be. So God just says, go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And offer him there. It doesn't say kill him, does it? It says offer him there. That's important. Verse 3, so Abraham arose early. If it had been me, I'd have slept late. But Abraham arose early. In the morning, saddled the donkey, took two of his young men with him. Why two of his young men with him? Two witnesses. And Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the which day? On the third day. Not the second day, not the fifth day, but on the third day. Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I. Not a baby. They say Isaac was about 30 years old. Which would make Abraham how old? 130. About 130. If they were going to have a fist fight, who would you expect to win? Yeah, Isaac. So it tells you Isaac is willing. Oh, there's big pictures. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Does Abraham intend to sacrifice his son? Yes. Then how can we come back to you? Because God must resurrect Isaac. Why? Because God had said through Isaac will your descendants be. And Isaac doesn't have any children. So if Isaac dies and stays in the grave, then God lied. And Abraham knows God doesn't lie. So he says, hey, you guys stay here. We're going to go worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Isaac had to carry the wood to the place of sacrifice on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, which is the same mountain on which Messiah was crucified. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac, let me interject, Isaac is not stupid, spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father... He said, here I am, my son. He said, look, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. What faith is that? God will provide it. Then he came to the place in which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. If Isaac refused to be bound, do you think Abraham had the strength to bind him? No, he goes willingly. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Avraham, Avraham. He said, Hanani, here I am. What would you like? He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. Does God want children sacrificed? No way, Jose. For now I know. Those words are terribly important. For now I know. His obedience was the proof that his faith was real and deep. 
I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him, behind him, that word is achar. Achar means physically behind in space, but it also means in the future, afterward in time. And both are important here. There behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Was there really a ram back there? There really was. But what does that ram picture? That ram pictures Messiah dying in place of Isaac. And that's the significance of Abraham seeing into the future that on this very mountain, Messiah would die in place of Isaac. And Abraham called the name, wait a minute, I, I didn't finish it. Was the ram caught in a thicket by its horns? The thicket refers to the sins of the world. Did Messiah have any sin? No, but he took your sin and mine upon him by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. You see how that's nice and neat there? It's just wrong. <laughs> The Hebrew is Adonai Yireh, the Lord will be seen. That's what it says, the Lord will be seen. The Lord will be seen on this very mountain to die in place of Isaac and you and me. As it said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That's not the shofar, but keep listening, but keep listening. Go to John chapter 8. How do I know for sure that Abraham saw into the future and saw Messiah crucified in place of Isaac? Because the Bible says so. John chapter 8, starting in verse 53. Are you greater? Oops, you're not there yet. Let me give you a minute. John chapter 8, verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? What's the answer to that? Who knows? Yes, he is. And the prophets who are dead, the answer to that is? Yes. Who do you make yourself out to be? Yeshua answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he's your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say, I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. Think those words hurt? Oh, yeah. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. When did he see it? He saw it on Mount Moriah. Then the Jews said to him, should be Judeans, said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? She was said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Did they understand he just said, I'm God? Yeah, because they took up stones to stone him. They understood. And then we have to add to Genesis 22 and John 8, we must add Hebrews chapter 11. Because in case we didn't understand the significance of Genesis 22, 
Paul explains it to us in Hebrews chapter 11, called the honor roll of the faithful. Hebrews eleven seventeen. Go ahead. In that John eight. In that John eight. Um, the I am. The I am is capitalized. There it shouldn't be. That, well, you've taught about you know, that, that phrase really means I will be who I will be. Yep. Is that what that really means? No, that really just says I okay. am. And when he, when he says, I am, he means, I always was, I am, and I always will be. But, yeah, that's not Exodus 3.14, which should say, I will be whom I will be. Yeah. Okay, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 17. God judges our faith by our actions. In verse 17 it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. That's from Genesis 21, before Genesis 22. So God had said, All these descendants I promised you must come through Isaac. And at the time of Genesis 22, Isaac doesn't have any children. Verse 8, of whom it was called, and Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So by Genesis 22 being the portion of scripture that is remembered on Rosh Hashanah, what have the children of Israel traditionally understood the Feast of Trumpets to be about? Resurrection. Resurrection. Okay. The Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, is referred to in the Torah as Yom Teruah, the day of the sounding of the shofar or the day of the awakening trumpet blast. As that's what Teruah means, is an awakening blast. A theme associated with Rosh Hashanah then is the theme to awake. As true also includes not just the blowing of the trumpet but also a shout. Have you noticed they always go together? When the trumpets begin to blow the people begin to shout in joy. When God blows that trumpet in heaven what do you think we're going to do? You think we're going to sit here and go oh darn it I was hoping I could work another year? <laughs> We're going to be shouting for joy. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. It tells us what we're going to sing. We're going to sing a new song. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. The rapture takes place in Revelation 4, verse 1. And we're within the first few days after the Feast of Trumpets when we come to Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song. That same new song is described for us back in Isaiah. Sang a new song saying. What's the word saying mean? It's a quote. These are the very words we're going to sing. So we may as well start practicing them now. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. So who's the you? Messiah Yeshua. And have redeemed us to God by your blood. 
out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made his kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 12 which associates the singing of the new song with the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. His beginning to rule and reign. We'll start in verse 4 for context because it begins, and in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. What begins the day of the Lord? The rapture and the resurrection. That day you say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. Make this known in all the earth. Cry out and shout to inhabitant of Zion. Cry out and shout. That's a teruah. For great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. And then the next thing that happens in Revelation, if you still have a finger there, and if not, just listen. It's Revelation chapter 6 when they open the first seal of the seven sealed scroll. The first seal begins the tribulation period. That's the coming of the false messiah to confirm the seven year peace of peace. So where are the rapture and resurrected saints when Messiah opens that first seal? Standing before the throne in heaven singing praises to the Lord our God. There are two types of trumpets that are used in the Bible. There's the silver trumpet and the ram's horn trumpet like this. The ram's horn trumpet is called the shofar. According to Leviticus 23.24 and Numbers 29.1, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah is the day of the blowing of trumpets. According to the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah 16a and Rosh Hashanah 3.3, the trumpet that's used is a ram's horn, not a silver trumpet. And that's important. Because there's something the Jewish sages tell us that we won't know if it's true or not until we get to heaven. Remember that ram was caught in the thicket in Genesis 22 by its horns? They say one of those horns is called the first trump. And that it was the one that was sounded in Exodus chapter 19 when God blew the shofar and it got louder and louder to announce the betrothal. And that the last trump is the other horn of that ram that will sound to announce the marriage ceremony. Is that true or not? We'll find out shortly. Let's go back to Psalm 27 verse 5. One particular verse I want to reemphasize. I know, I know, you guys are starting to get hungry. We won't go more than three or four more hours till we eat. <laughs> Psalm 27, verse 5. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. What's that word in Hebrew for pavilion? That's the sukkah, isn't it? In the secret place of his tabernacle. The word tabernacle in Hebrew is ohel, it means tent. 
He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Hmm. Does the Old Testament really talk about the rapture and the resurrection? Answer is yes. Go to Isaiah 26. Remember when Messiah was about to raise Lazarus and Lazarus' sister said, yes, I know he'll be raised on the last day. It's because Isaiah teaches the resurrection. Let's start in verse 19. We'll do the short version. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Who's the my? That's Isaiah. Isaiah says when the resurrection comes, I'm going. Awaken, sing. Think of Revelation chapter 5 we just read. Awaken, sing, you who dwell in dust. How can dead people sing? They must be resurrected. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers. That word chamber refers to the bridal chamber. But here's where not only do we have the resurrection, but we have the rapture. Because God didn't say, come my formerly dead people, did he? <laughs> it says, come my people. So those that were dead and those that are living will be caught up together. Enter your chambers. That's the bridal chamber. Who goes into the bridal chamber? The bridegroom and the bride. And shut your doors behind you. When Noah and his family and the animals went on the ark, God shut the door. Did the rain fall that day? Not for seven days. Seven days later, all the rest of mankind was destroyed. Pictures the seven years in heaven before the battle of Armageddon. Hide yourself as it were for a little moment. Well, if a day is to the Lord's a thousand years, what's seven years? Just a moment. Until the indignation is passed. That Hebrew word indignation is za'am. Z-A apostrophe A-M. And it refers to the wrath of God being poured out in the world. It appears many times in the Old Testament. Always associated with God pouring out his wrath in the day of the Lord. So where are his people when the wrath gets poured out? They're in the bridal chamber in heaven. And then when the indignation is past, we come to verse 21. For behold, which means shut up and listen. The Lord comes out of his place. What's his place? Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Until it's time for Armageddon. Until it's time for the Lord to return in Revelation 19.11. To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The word iniquity means lawlessness. For refusing to keep the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. The earth will also disclose her blood, will no more cover her slain. Compare this to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Comes right after 1 Corinthians chapter 14, but you probably guessed that. Verses 50 through 57.
Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood that is you and I in these human bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. I'm not one of the doctors in this fellowship, but even I can tell you that if we were taken 30 miles up into space, we couldn't breathe, we couldn't live. This body must be changed. So it goes on to say, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Don't look up mystery in the English dictionary. It's the Hebrew word sod, S-O-D, which means a, diff a deeper meaning than we've seen in the scriptures before. The Jewish people understood Isaiah 26 to be all about the resurrection, but they never thought about what about those who hadn't died yet. So Paul says, I want you to see it a little deeper. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, which is a term for Yom Teruah, the day of the awakening trumpet blast. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So the we are not the dead. The we are those that are remaining alive. Where will we go? Messiah only mentions the rapture and resurrection in one place. John 14. It's not in Matthew 24. The reason so many people mistake the rapture as being post-trib is because they think Matthew 24 is about the rapture and it's not. But John 14 is. John 14 verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Does your Bible have an asterisk that says, well, it's not really mansions. It's the bridal chambers of Isaiah 26. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. If the Lord is preparing all these bridal chambers in heaven, but he doesn't come for the bride until he returns to the earth, then he's got a bunch of empty rooms up there. If he builds a bridal chamber for you, he will come and get you. When? Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 13, first thing Paul does is tell us we're ignorant. But that's okay. First Thessalonians, you realize, was the first letter Paul wrote. And the very first thing he talks about is the rapture and resurrection. Because that was the motivation. Why should people believe in Paul's message? Why should he care? Would you like to spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth or burning in the lake of fire? How many would prefer the lake of fire? So you can go home now. I see no hands. Good. Okay. I was only teasing anyway. Verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep. That's the term Paul used for those that have died as believers. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe Yeshua died and rose again, 
How many of you believe Yeshua died and rose again? Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Yeshua. He can't bring the believers back with Messiah in Revelation 19 if they're not in heaven with Messiah. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, which means it's true, he told me himself, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, there's a teruah, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, the trumpet call of God and the screams and shouts of joy and rejoicing go together. And the dead and Messiah will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. With which words? The words that before the wrath of God is poured out in this world, God's going to take us to the bridal chamber. God promised he will keep us out of the hour of trial, not through the hour of trial. Lastly, let's go to Revelation 4. I shouldn't use the word lastly because I used it five or six times, and by then it has no meaning anymore. Mm-hmm. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Is the rapture and the resurrection as John sees it in a vision? Verse 1 begins, after these things. After these things refers to the church age described in chapters 2 and 3. I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. If you were amongst the children of Israel 2,000 years ago when John wrote this, would they have said, I wonder what he means? No, they said immediately he's talking about the Feast of Trumpets. Because one of the main themes is the door to heaven opens. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So what calls John to heaven in the vision? The trumpet call. Immediately I was in the spirit. It's just a vision. It didn't happen 2,000 years ago. And behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Who's that one? That's our Messiah Yeshua. This is the Bema Seat judgment of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. What's the, the significance of a jasper and a sardius stone? They're the first and last stones in the breastplate of the high priest. The book of Hebrews calls Messiah our great high priest. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Think back to the rainbow. Genesis chapter 9. One of the first covenants God gave was the rainbow. And what does the rainbow signify? No, never again will there be judgment without mercy. Where is the mercy? The mercy is in Messiah. We could all end up in the lake of fire, but for Messiah. He is our rainbow. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. It doesn't identify them, but I believe they are the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Because in further in the book of Revelation, when we see the new Jerusalem, the foundations and gates are the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. 
But they're clothed in white robes. Are they angels? No, they're people. What do the white robes indicate? The righteousness of the saints. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. When do we get our rewards according to the Messiah? When he comes. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Just remember Isaiah chapter 11 describes those sevenfold spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne, around the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face like a man. fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. These are called cherubim. Remember around, oh, let's say February 14th each year, you see these little baby angels with wings. They're the cherubim. This is what cherubim look like. They don't look like that. Verse 8, the four living creatures were each having six wings, were full of eyes surrounding within. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Which means he was from the beginning, he is now and always will be and does not ever change. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders... Fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Then chapter 5 opens with the seven sealed scroll. And no one's able or worthy to loose the scrolls. What are we going to do? Verse 5. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And then they see Messiah as a lamb having been slain. Then in verses 9 and 10, we each sing a new song, which we read a few minutes ago. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals. And that begins the tribulation. But we are in heaven at the time. Have you ever heard of Pirkei Avot, The Sayings of the Fathers? It's a neat little book. If you've never read it, I recommend you, you read it. In Pirkei Avot, it's Rabbi Eliezer that tells us that the left horn is called the first trump, and that's the horn that was blown on Mount Sinai. And at the right horn of that ram that was sacrificed in place of Isaac, called the last trump, is the one that will be blown to herald the coming of the Messiah. So I didn't make that up. Is it true or not? We'll find out when we get to heaven. Another name we read and you make note of is Yom Hadin, which is the day of judgment. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. It describes this day of judgment. Daniel chapter 7. Sometimes he drives a little fast. Yeah, sometimes I drive a little fast. 
I get so excited. Daniel chapter 7. There are two visions in Daniel chapter 7. The first begins in verse 9, the other in verse 13. And these two visions are seven years apart in time in their fulfillment. I'm still tap dancing. Are we there? Daniel 7 verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place. That's Revelation 4.1. And the ancient of days was seated. That's Messiah. Why do they call him the ancient of days? Because he was in the beginning. His hair was white as snow. That doesn't mean he's old. It means he's very wise. So all you ladies that are coloring your gray hair, you're trying to keep yourself from being wise. <laughs> Not really. And I won't make any blonde jokes. I'd like to survive the day. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a firing flame. Its wheels a burning fire. That's from the book of Ezekiel, if you remember. That's the way the throne of God is described. And it's not wheels within wheels. They're ophanim. They're a type of angelic being. But Ezekiel and Daniel, neither one knew how to describe it. They're some unusual looking critters. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And that's what we read in Revelation 4. And one was seated on the throne. There's 24 thrones around it. What books do they judge from? The Torah, what we should have done. The book of deeds, what we did do. You know what? We're all going to come up short. But then there's that Lamb's Book of Life. Yeah. Yeah, 10,000 times 10,000 is a lot of people. The Bible doesn't have ways to say numbers like a million or a billion. Those words don't exist in biblical Hebrew. But that 10,000 times 10,000 includes the angels, right? I would say, yeah. I mean, I think the text is pretty clear there. Yeah, I think so too. But her point is, it's a lot of folk. Yeah. A lot of folk. Yeah. All we know about the number of people that have been raptured and resurrected is what it reads in Revelation chapter 5 about from being from all peoples, tongues, and nations. So, which indicates a lot of folk. Let's go to Romans 3. Romans 3. Tells us how our judgment would go were it not for Messiah. <coughs> Romans 3.10 As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So if the only judgment was from the book of the law, how would we all come out? I would say smoky, but okay. <laughs> Romans 3.23 For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We're still in trouble. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. Now we start to see the glimmer of hope. If we had to stand judgment on what we've done, we would all end up in the lake of fire. 
For Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. So today's a day to thank the Lord that he suffered and died for us. That we might not have to stand judgment on our own merits. But that he took our sins upon him. Romans 10 verses 9 to 11. The English again falls a little short. Should say that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord is Yeshua and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Yeshua is the Lord all throughout the Old Testament. Whenever you see that tetragrammaton, he is the Lord. For some reason, people see the Lord of hosts and recognize Messiah, but when it just says the Lord, they don't, and we should. Let's go to Revelation 22.12. When does the scripture say we get those rewards, those white robes and crowns? Revelation 22.12. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. So if Revelation 4.1 is not the rapture and the resurrection, then you wouldn't see these saints in their robes and crowns, casting their crowns at the feet of Messiah. Because the reward is given to us when? When he comes. Notice verse, verse 13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is translated from the Greek, but the original to Revelation is Hebrew. It would have read, I am the Aleph and the Tav, as we discussed about all those Aleph Tavs throughout Scripture. Another place where you see the Aleph Tav, which is eight instead of et, is in Revelation 12.10. And they shall look upon me, Aleph Tav, whom they pierced. I'm sorry, Zechariah 12. Did I say it wrong? Oh, Zechariah. Thank you, 12.10. Just back up the tape and erase it. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. My Baptist commentary throws up all over that verse and said, oh, oh they, they took that from a bad scroll. That teaches salvation by works. It does not. Salvation is by faith. But if you've been saved by faith, then you will naturally want to obey the Lord. Go to Revelation 20, verse 12. Revelation 4, 1 is the Bema Seat judgment. It's a judgment for believers. What about unbelievers? They get their judgment a thousand years later at the great white throne judgment. It says, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. This is at the end of the millennial kingdom. Satan's been released. Saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Again, they opened the book of the Torah, the book of the deeds, the book of life. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is where it's so sad. When their deeds are judged, do they fall short? Yes. yes. 
And then they open the book of life to see where they accepted Messiah and their names are not there. So what is their judgment? Verse 15, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Go back to Joel chapter 2. We're almost done. And what do you know? We still have five minutes, give or take. I figured surely it was tomorrow by now, but okay. Joel chapter 2. The word Joel in Hebrew is Yael. It means the Lord is God. And Joel chapter 2 verse 1 begins the day of the Lord. First thing that happens in the day of the Lord is the rapture and the resurrection. But then is followed closely thereafter by the start of the tribulation period. So Joel chapter 2 verse 1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Which trumpet is that? That's the last trumpet. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. What happens when they sound that last trumpet? Rapture and resurrection. But then let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Those who didn't go in the rapture and resurrection, they should now be going, uh-oh. We've been left behind. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. If it's at hand, it's here. It's too late now. Not too late to be saved, but too late to go in the rapture and avoid the wrath. So the day of the Lord, after the rapture, is a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been. Nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them. But wait a minute, the first seal, the white rider on a white horse comes in peace. The second horse is war. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. During that tribulation period, two-thirds of the Jewish people die, three-fourths of the Gentiles. Do you really want to be here? Me neither. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With the noise like chariots over mountains they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before then the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they're not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? But then God answers his own question. Verse 12, now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. 
I've heard so many Bible teachers say, after the rapture and resurrection, no one can be saved. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says a countless multitude will be saved. But you're better to be off in the, in the group that went in the rapture and resurrection. Because we didn't have to face this. But it says, now turn to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Surrender your heart, not your garments. What's it mean to rend your heart? It means to be circumcised of the heart, which is to be obedient unto God. Return to the Lord your God. That's to repent, come back to God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And then verse 15 ends the tribulation period seven years later. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. So what day is this? Yom Kippur, seven years later. Call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, and let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. When did the bridegroom and bride enter the bridal chamber? That was in Isaiah 26 at the rapture and resurrection. As the tribulation period ends, the bridegroom and the bride come out of the bridal chamber and that's Revelation 19.11 as Messiah returns for the battle of Armageddon. Why did I go over that last part? Because if there's anybody out there that's not saved, there's still time. There's still time to turn in repentance to God, in faith, and to accept the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah in your place. And we will close as we always do with the traditional Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, blessing. Everybody say, Lashanah, Tovah, Tikatevu. It means, may you be inscribed for a good year, meaning, may you be inscribed in that Lamb's Book of Life. So that when that trumpet sounds and we're still listening, we can go up and enter the bridal chamber, being delivered from the wrath that is to come. Let's close in prayer.